Let me get myself organized here. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. I'm just uh, so often continue to be in awe at what, uh, what God does, the way he speaks to people. And uh, it's encouraging too. As you, having prepared something, you, you hear the way God's been speaking to other people. And uh, I think, yeah, yeah, that's good. Thank you, Lord. Earlier in the week, I was asking, as I was thinking about uh, this morning, I was asking the question, so what is a disciple of Jesus? I had many reasons why I started there. But, uh, I, yeah, a disciple of Jesus is someone who, who follows Jesus, right, and learns from Jesus. We... We, we, we all give a, that kind of answer pretty quickly, but being who I am, my, my next question was, yeah, but what does that look like? <laughs> what does that mean? And having worked in a number of several different cultures, I know that that might not look the same in some cultures as it does in others. Not exactly. Uh, there'll be lots of similarities, but it won't look exactly the same. So... You know, I, I asked, well, what does that look like? What, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What, is, what does that mean? And, of course, that kind of discussion in the end, <laughs> we can go round and round and round, but that kind of discussion in the end boils down to what does a disciple of Jesus do? Doesn't it? And, and again, the minute details of it, might be different in one culture to another, but still it's going to end, end up with the question, what does, what does a disciple of Jesus do? And the problem with asking that question is that when people ask that question, some, sometimes people get really funny. Sometimes people might go to, they might get all, all legalistic and they might say, well, You've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and, and, and the list can sometimes be quite long, and it be quite specific, and, and sometimes it even boils down to, you know, your salvation depends on the clothes you're wearing, and, and, the, and the words, look, <laughs> we, we, we don't want to go there, you know? but some people do, and so they get, they get really funny with that. And on the other hand, some people, they, they sort of go, whoa, don't talk to me about what I've got to do. I'm saved by grace through faith and I believe in Jesus and don't talk to me about what I've got to do. We're not going to go there either. Okay? We're not going to go there either. You see, I, I, I think... We, we could agree, or at least you know, in a few minutes hopefully you'll agree with me that if we become disciples of Jesus, uh, there are some things that we can kind of expect to happen, right? Yeah. yeah. But then we've, we've got that problem of this is the list of things you've got to do to get saved. Yeah, no, we don't want to go there. So let's... Uh, what a good place to start, James. You know... Those of you who know um, a little bit of church history know that Martin Luther lived in a time when leadership of the church was saying, if you just give a bit more money to the construction of the cathedral in Rome, God will forgive a few more of your sins. Yeah. And uh, that boiled down to you can purchase your salvation. You know, you're a bit richer, good on you, you're going to get more sins forgiven. 
And, and Luther had a problem with that, and so might he, yeah? That's, that ain't found in the Bible, I can assure you of that, yeah? And uh, because he lived in that context, he loved what Paul said about salvation by grace through faith. He said, look, there it is in the Bible, what the, what the Pope is saying I'm sorry, but it's, it's not what the Bible teaches. And he had a real problem with that. And the Pope had a real problem with him saying that. And the result was the Reformation that happened um, some centuries ago. But Martin Luther had a real problem with the letter of James. And he had a real problem with it because he was in that context. And the letter, there's some verses there in the letter of James which seem to give the, a bit of strength to the You've got to do this, this, and this, and this in order to get into heaven. And uh, there's a few verses. But Luther called James the epistle of straw. That which was going to be burnt up, in other words. (laughs) He really didn't like it. But I think Luther didn't quite get what James was saying. And I understand. In the context he was in, he was going, whoa, you know, I don't want to to read that. And he thought perhaps that James and Paul had uh, some serious disagreements. I don't think they did. Anyway, here's what James says in chapter 2 at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And he goes on in the next verse, gives the, the example. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, be fed. But there's nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? Fair comment, right? Yeah, absolutely. Fair comment. In the same way, he says in verse 17, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, is dead. And Luther really, really didn't like that verse. At verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. And in verse 19, <laughs> you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that. <laughs> and shudder. Uh, James is making a good point, right? It, there is no use in saying, I believe, but not doing anything about it, right? There is no use in saying to someone, be warm, be fed, bless you, sister, and letting them walk out. <laughs> inadequate clothing without any possibility of having lunch yeah that's just that's not that's not the christian faith yeah and that's why we do help each other that's why we do help people even who probably won't ever be able to help us that's why we do that because we are christians yeah and that's what james is saying here it's just i'm sorry but you know Faith and doing nothing about it doesn't cut it. And yeah, Luther had a problem with that because it was those kind of verses that were being used at the time to, to say, well, you have to give money to the, to the church, to building the church in Rome, otherwise your, your salvation is in danger. Which obviously is a, a twisting of, of what the Bible is saying. Yeah, the Bible's not saying that. And if you, if you, you read, read a bit of theology, you might have noticed that over the years there's been a lot of argument about Paul and James and how they disagree with each other. I don't think they disagree with each other. 
In Romans chapter 6, at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul, Paul wrote Romans, by the way, and uh, he's just been talking about how, you know, in the first few chapters of Romans, how everybody needs to be saved, and this is how you can be saved, and it's by grace through faith, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and all these wonderful verses that anyone who's read a bit of Romans will be able to pull out and tell, tell people. And he says at the beginning of chapter 6, What then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And this by no means, I was just like, that's so weak, that translation. Um, The phrase there is really, really strong. The King James says, God forbid, which which, four centuries ago was a way of saying, there's a snowball's chance in hell that that's true. Yeah. You've got Buckley's, mate. That, that, that's not even close to true. Yeah? Or less colourfully, I might say, absolutely not. Yeah? The words there in, in the original text are like, no way. Get away from me. Don't, don't say that stuff. That's awful. You know? Paul's going, Ugh, no, oh, terrible. Absolutely not. Yeah? And so... While he's been preaching, salvation by grace through faith. Yeah, it's faith that saves us. He goes on to say, but does that mean we can just keep on doing what we were doing before? Uh Uh-uh. No, no way. Yeah, That's Paul's response to that. And Paul and James, uh, they they agree on that. So we're left with this, this issue. What does... A disciple of Jesus look like or we get back to what does a disciple of Jesus do it's a big question because I'll quit when they're considering that question a lot of people say but but if I don't quite meet up this if I don't make the standard does that mean I'm I'm not going to heaven after all I mean I, I said I was going to follow Jesus but I tripped over I fell flat on my face and I didn't make the standard does that mean I better do something quicker or if I get run over by a bus, I'm going to hell today. Yeah, I, that's the kind of things that sometimes pass through people's minds. And the answer to that question is no. No, that's not the way it is. No, you're not going to hell if you get run over by a bus today just because you tripped over. That's not the answer to that question at all. But that is not a contradiction to what I was just saying before. It's not a contradiction to what James is saying in his letter and I want to try and explain that a little bit so what, what have we got so far we've got <clears throat> being a disciple of Jesus will make a difference to what we do right. yeah? yeah that's that, that's what James is saying you you can't just say oh yep I'm gonna follow Jesus and then nothing's gonna nothing's gonna happen nothing's gonna change nothing's gonna, not on okay we, we we can agree on that that's that's, that's one thing there. Um, we're supposed to make progress, right? If you say, this is where I am now and that's where Jesus wants me to be, um, I'm going to get there step by step. Yeah? That, that, that concept, that sits well with everybody, right? We're... Now, I know that having, you know, over, over years worked with, with projects and worked with organisations and, and worked with management, I know that if... You're getting from A to B, you should be able to measure along the way where you're at. Yeah. Okay? 
And I can see where some people's minds are going. You, are we, we measuring how good a Christian we are here? Uh, um, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm not going into that minefield, right? But because that's where you get, oh, no, I didn't make that standard, therefore, you know, if I get run over by a bus today, my, my eternal existence is in danger. Not what we're talking about. Bear with me. We're, go, we're, we're sort of going on this journey, but I want to keep along the way, I just want to keep reminding you we're not stepping on that mine. Okay? We're not going to get blown up just there because that's not what we're talking about. But we should have some idea. We should be able to say, I'm further along on that journey than I was last year. Yeah? Or we should be able to say, I'm here and I've, I've got some distance to go on this journey. I'm not there yet. All right? Just keep holding on to these, these things. Okay? We, we can hold both of these balls without dropping one. All right? We'll get there. Just bear with me. What I want to do is draw a couple of lessons from a guy who wrote a book a long time ago. Now, this guy wrote a book and uh, he, he had a bit of help with this book. Uh, the Holy Spirit inspired him. The book we know as, well, one and two kings. It used to be one book and it got split up into two because it was too long for the standard size scroll and all that. In the book of uh, one and two kings... There's this story of all the kings of Israel and Judah. And if you read through from beginning to end, and I have a habit of doing that with you know, chunks of the Bible, just read through, just get the flow of what the author was trying to say. And after a while, as you're reading through 1 and 2 Kings, there's something that starts to, as you read it, you go, man, where have I read this before? So-and-so, son of so-and-so, became king, and when he became king, he was 25 years old, and he did not follow in the footsteps of his father David, or alternatively, he followed in the footsteps of his father David, and he did one, two, three things. Then he died, and then his son succeeded him as king. That formula is there again and again and again and again. How many kings of Judah and Israel were there? This guy repeats that over and over and over again. And uh, I'll just give you a couple of examples because they're different. Um, beginning of, uh, for example, uh, chapter... Which chapter shall I choose? That's how it is, yeah? Chapter 16 of 2 Kings. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramalia, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Ra, 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 ra. And at the end of chapter 16, Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. Well, let's talk about Hezekiah at the beginning of chapter 18. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah's son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. It's the same formula, yeah? Again and again, same thing said. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, rah, 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 rah. And then you get 
There's actually several chapters on Hezekiah. He was such a good king. But then you get to um, the end, and again, 20, verse 21 of chapter 20, Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. This formula goes over and over and over. There's a couple of things I want to notice about that formula. The first one is he keeps, keeps comparing them all to David. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read the Bible. And David was not perfect. Huh? Oh, no. No, no, no. Along the way, he had some pretty big slip-ups. There was the one where, well, you know, you've probably heard me preach about this some other time. It's a great story. There he was on the roof of his palace. He just sent out his army. Off you go, fellas. You go and fight for the kingdom. I think I'll just stay here and uh, watch the scenery. Which he did from the roof of his palace. Looked down over some lady having a, having a shower and... He liked what he saw, and you probably know the story. Laziness led to lust, led to adultery, led to murder. Yeah, ended up doing in her husband so that he could cover up his own mistake. No, he wasn't perfect. Not only was he not perfect along the way, but he, he ended up really a bit of a bitter old man, David. He got to the end of his life, and things were pretty tough for David, and he was... He, he was a bit of a bitter old man. I'm not sure I would have found him good company in his last year or two. David, some of the things I, I read there. And yet, there he is. He's the standard. He's the, he's the man after God's own heart. Okay, I've sort of skewed the picture a bit. I've, I've paid, deliberately painted it to make the point. But you see, the difference is that on the bottom line, we get to it and I'm, I could spend an hour on this some other time, but the bottom line is David was teachable and correctable. Yeah? yeah? yeah. That was the bottom line. You see, if you compare what happened between him and Saul, or compare him to what happened with Saul, Saul blew it. The prophet went to Saul and said, you blew it. And Saul says, no, I didn't. It was the men. They blew it. The prophet went to David when he blew it and said, you blew it. And David went, yep. Yeah, I blew it. I'm sorry. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Create a right spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, he says in Psalm 51. The title of Psalm 51, by the way, if you've got a Bible that's got the little fine print at the beginning of the Psalms, that's actually verse 1 of the Psalm in the Hebrew text. And then at the beginning of Psalm 51, it says, when the prophet Nathan came to David about his sin with Bathsheba, create in me a pure heart, O oh God, he says. You see, there's a big difference between, nah, I didn't do anything, it was them. And, yeah, I blew it. Lord, forgive me, create in me a clean heart. The difference between Saul and David there is the difference between a man after God's own heart and a man who is not after God's own heart. And that's why David was held up as that benchmark. He did right in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, he tripped up, went flat on his nose quite a few times. Even near the end of his life, he was a grumpy old man. But he was still a man after God's own heart. Is it telling us something? Does that begin to allow you to hold two balls at the same time? Yes, there's a standard we're going for. And no, you're not going to hell if you get run over by a bus today because you tripped over this morning. Yeah. That's one thing that I notice from this formula. The other thing I notice from this formula as I'm reading through the books of Kings is that what the author finds important 
is a bit different than what I would have found important. Until I start to think about why it's important. Hezekiah is a great example. Chapter 20 of 2 Kings, verse 20. As for the other event, he's just spent three chapters, 18, chapters 18, 19 and 20, talking about the reign of Hezekiah. And normally each king gets a chapter or half a chapter. If he's a bad king, he gets a, three verses. You know, <laughs> Hezekiah gets three chapters. He was a good guy. And he details explicitly some of the really wonderful things that Hezekiah did in his reign. Then he gets to the last two verses of these three chapters. And he says, as for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, all his achievements, how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Judah? <coughs> oh, dearie me. Did you get that? You know those other things he did? You want to know about them? Go read the other guy's book. I'm not wasting my time on them. And yet, if you go to Israel today... And you do a tour of Jerusalem, you know what they're going to show you? One of the first things they're going to show you? Hezekiah's tunnel. It's their pride and joy. It is a magnificent feat of engineering. I mean, we're talking <coughs> over two and a half thousand years ago here, right? Goodness knows what mathematics the Israelites knew at the time. They must have known some because they built a darn good tunnel, okay? But... They certainly didn't have precision measuring instruments, but they dug this tunnel from two ends through rock. And when they met in the middle, they were only a few centimetres out. Wow. That's an incredible feat of engineering. Hey, we, every time they do a tunnel, like the freeway tunnel, they, they, were, they were better than that. Right? But Hezekiah's men, when they were digging this tunnel, they didn't have some of the technology we've, we've got to do it with. Yeah? And yet their precision was unbelievably good. That was an amazing feat of engineering. And not only was it an amazing feat of engineering, it meant, <coughs> it meant that Jerusalem could withstand a siege from an opposing army for an incredible amount of time. Because, see, when an army invades a city and the source of water for that city is not within the city walls, of course that army is just going to cut off the water and... The city better surrender real soon or they're going to die of thirst. Yeah? Well, what this tunnel meant was that the water source, instead of going outside the city, was tunnelled inside the city. And they could sit there within their walls, drinking lots of water every day, while the army outside sat in a semi-desert, trying to convince them to give up the city. Yeah? So strategically, from a military point of view, this tunnel was incredible. It was huge. It was really, really amazing. This was a magnificent achievement. And yet here, the writer of Kings is saying, oh, you know those other good things that Hezekiah did, you know, like his tunnel. You've no doubt heard of that tunnel. It was pretty amazing. But go read the other guy's book if you want to know about that. Make you think, doesn't it? Obviously, it wasn't important enough. It gets a mention. Oh, yeah, he dug this tunnel. But, oh, yeah, he dug this tunnel is compared to three chapters of de details about when Sennacherib threatened Jerusalem and Jerusalem's deliverance foretold and Hezekiah's prayer. He got every word of a prayer that Hezekiah prayed one day. Isaiah prophesies Sennacherib's fall and Hezekiah's illness and how the prophet came and told him you're going to die and then Hezekiah prayed and God 
appeared to change his mind. And the prophet went back and said, God's just added 15 years to your life. That stuff, three chapters of this kind of stuff. Oh, but you know that incredible engineering feat and major military strategic victory? Uh, Go read the other guy's book. The point is that what made Hezekiah such a great king in the eyes of, of this author were the things that mattered to God, not the things that sometimes I might think are important. I mean, that, I'd be proud of that tunnel. If I'd, if I'd overseen the, the, the digging of that tunnel with the technology and so on that Hezekiah's men had, that oh, I, I think you'd have a right to be proud of, you, proud of yourself. That's amazing. But it's only, that's, that's relegated to the level I'll go read about that in some other guy's book. I've, I've been in, uh, in Phuket this last week. Um, by about Wednesday, I stopped working hard, so hard that I actually noticed I was in Thailand, which was, which was great. Um, I was at the uh, ACCI's Pan-Asia Conference. And uh, great week, fantastic stories. If you want to ever go and be, have your mind blown by some of the amazing things that God's people are doing in various parts of the world and what God's doing through them, go spend a week at Pan-Asia Conference and listen to those stories. They're fantastic. You also get the, the privilege of listening to people preach like uh, Alan Davies, who's uh, um, he's president of ACCI and he's the national vice president of the ACC. And Alan, if you've ever heard him preach, you know that he's got this way of um, distilling down the main point and slapping him in the face with it. <laughs> and uh, he was preaching one day and he says, he, well, he was talking about measures of failure and success. He was talking about how do you know when you've planted a good church? How do you know when you've, you've got a good community development ministry going? How do you know? I mean, there's all these measures of success. We can measure the right. We can measure the progress step by step by step. I said that just a few minutes ago. We can measure it. So we've got to have some thing by which we measure it. And in the end, Alan said, you know, you've only failed if you didn't do what God told you to do. I'm not quite sure what he said for the next few minutes because I was sitting there thinking, okay. That boils it down, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And you can, you can have these amazing achievements like building a tunnel, and nothing wrong with that tunnel. Needed to be built, no doubt. There's nothing wrong with having a really efficient organisation. Gee, efficient organisations are a blessing on this world. They really are. Yeah. But if it's not what God told you to do, you just go read that other guy's book about it. Yeah. Doesn't get into the main. Doesn't get into the main scene. Yeah. So you're successful if you're doing what God has asked you to do. Yeah. And of course, Alan was talking to a room full of pastors and missionaries, right? So bear that context in mind. But for all of us too, yeah. If I if I take that and apply it to what does a disciple of Jesus look like? Uh, what makes you a successful disciple? Is there such a thing? Yeah. What makes you a successful disciple is you're, you're heading on the way that God wants you to head on. You're doing what God wants you to do. Yeah, I know. The next question is, yeah, but how do I find that out? I know. I, well, maybe you're not asking that. I'd be asking that question. You know, this, uh, this whole thing about how we measure our progress as a disciple and this little lesson I... 
I've, I've learned from the writer of Kings, it's got two edges. One is that we need to do, we need to do stuff as a disciple. Yeah, it's stuff we're supposed to do. There's progress we're supposed to make. And the other edge of it is that doing stuff is a waste unless it's the stuff that God wants you to do. And so I guess we can say that there are many different measures of success out there. There's lots of ways that we can look at ourselves and say our progress is good or our progress is bad or we're further on than last year or we're not further on than last year. What I want to say to you is that the ones that matter are the ones that God has, has asked you to work on. Yeah. And if you're still tripping up, uh, well, you just need to ask, what is it that God has been asking me to work on? And go there and just see if you're making any progress. You know, all this boils down to something, and I've deliberately not mentioned it until now. I've kind of steered the conversation around this, and maybe some of you have noticed. But this something that I haven't mentioned is what, in my mind, completes the thing where we can hold these balls at the same time. The Apostle John, in his first letter, tells us that God is Love. God doesn't just love, He is love. If you want to know love, get to know God. If you're getting to know God, you are getting to know love. And that makes such a huge difference because God wants us to make it. Think about someone you really love. Do you, do you want them to make it? Those of us who have children, we love our children. We, we want them to get there. We want them to make it. We want them to reach where they're, where they're going, don't we? You see, that's love. God is not standing there saying, hey, you, this is a standard. Get over it. Oh, you didn't make it. Okay, you're out. No, this is, this is not what it, you, you don't do that to your children, do you? Yeah? They trip over, you help them back up, and you... If you're a good parent, you might show them a way that they won't trip so much next time. And when they don't listen to you, you tell them again. When they don't listen again, you tell them again. Don't you? You don't say, there's the door. You see, we are disciples of one who loves us. Yeah, there's stuff we're supposed to do. Yeah, we, we are supposed to be making progress on a way towards being like Jesus. Yeah, we, it, it's a really good thing when we can look back and say, I'm further along than last year. And it's, it's not a good thing when we look back and say, I'm actually further behind where I was last year. Yeah, All that is true. But we are following one who loves us. We are following one who wants us to make it. Yeah, we are following one who is on our side. Again, those of you who have children. <laughs> How many times when everybody is criticizing your child, do you join in the chorus? 
You don't, do you? You'll start to find something on the other side. You'll find a, try, you'll, even if you acknowledge that much of these criticisms of your child are, are true, you're still going to find the other point of view and you're still going to make sure people hear the other point of view, aren't you? Yeah? Well, I think that's one of those things that we can, we can safely say that God as Father is like us as parents. You know, sometimes we have to be a bit careful with metaphors. <laughs> and comment Gina made earlier, you know, that it gave, gave testimony to what used to be a pretty poor relationship, eh? Yeah. And we've got to be careful sometimes that we don't put that onto God and our, our own human experiences. But the metaphor is, is apt in this case, yeah? Our, our, we, we love our children and we want them to improve, we want them to grow, we want them to become amazing people but yet when they trip up along the way well, what do we do we help them up we teach them we guide them we encourage them we give them another chance we keep keep them focused on on where they're supposed to be going and that's what it means to follow jesus yeah we've got to get there one day but we're getting there under the guiding hand of he who is love and he who wants us to make it. Amen.